Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness, back today with episode 25 of the March of History podcast. I'm going to try to keep this episode to a shorter episode than previous ones, maybe around 20 minutes if possible. I've spoken to some of the audience members. They seem to like the shorter ones better. It fits in with their routines, uh, you know, whether it's commuting to work or working out or whatever it is. So we at the March of History aim to please, so we'll try to make this episode 20 minutes. I've said that in the past and end up going over double that. So no promises, but we're, we're going to give it a shot today. So we left off last time with Caesar attacking the Helvetii in a surprise ambush as they were crossing the Seon River and wiping out a quarter of their number, men, women, and children. Absolutely ruthless. The Romans then flexed their engineering skill and built a bridge and crossed their entire army over the bridge and over the Seon River in one day. Now, this is a feat that had taken the Helvetii using boats 20 days to get across three quarters of their population. Admittedly, they had a lot more people than Caesar did, but still, 20 days versus one day, this is a marvelous feat of ancient engineering, and the Helvetii were duly impressed and in awe of this feat. And so they send a messenger or, or an embassy to Caesar to request peace terms. But the leader of this embassy is a man who was the architect of Rome's great defeat, 20 years, or actually, I don't know if it was 20 years earlier, but it was a generation earlier, during the time of Caesar's uncle, Marius, where a group of Helvetii had defeated a Roman army and had killed a Roman consul and marched the Roman troops under the yoke and humiliated them. And this man that they sent as a leader of their embassy was the architect and the leader in that battle. So... They were clearly showing the Romans that, yes, we want peace, but remember, we can defeat you as well. We are not defenseless. And Caesar and this man, I believe his name was Devico, are two big egos, and unsurprisingly, they don't get along too well. They get into a bit of war of words with each other, some ancient trash talk. You got to love it. And it ends in Devico storming off saying that the Helvetii were used to accepting hostages from other tribes, not giving them up to Rome, and that Caesar's terms that he were demanding were unacceptable. And so he storms off, and the peace talks are over. So that's where we pick up again this week. Now, shortly after DeVico stormed away from this summit, the Helvetii break camp and begin to move away from Caesar and the Romans. Caesar breaks camp as well and begins to stalk the Helvetii, staying no more than four to five miles from their camp at all times, keeping them within sight, keeping them within attack distance, but not actually attacking them. He's not looking for battle yet. He's just stalking them. But he does send 4,000 of his cavalry who, if you remember, I said in previous episodes, most of Rome's cavalry is made up of allied cavalry. That meant that they came from tribes or local peoples allied to Rome. Rome did not provide a cavalry force of its own. It was focused on the famous Roman infantry. So Caesar sends his 4,000 cavalry ahead of his army to harass Helvetii rearguard. Now, this is common in, in ancient warfare. The cavalry are much faster. They can harass the rearguard, stop the great populace from moving as quickly as they would like because they have to constantly turn back to defend themselves. A great mass of people like this does not turn 
and switch directions very easily and can tend towards panic. So this can be a very effective strategy. What's more is Caesar has a lot more cavalry than they do. But somehow, and we're going to learn more about how this happens in a minute, but somehow Caesar doesn't know exactly how yet, but somehow his 4,000 cavalry troops are ambushed by a Helveti squad of 500 cavalry and put to flight. Caesar says only a few of the Roman cavalry were killed, so it's only a minor defeat. It's more of an embarrassment than an actual battle defeat, but still, this is not good. This does not look good for the prestige of Rome. This does not look good for continuing the campaign of fear, because you got to think, Caesar had just made that bridge in record time, marched his troops over it, defeated one-fourth of the Helvetii army in a surprise attack. He had the Helvetii in fear of the name of Rome and in the name of Caesar. Well, now they just saw that 500 of their troops beat 4,000 of his, and so now that whole fear factor is probably switched to the opposite direction. And unsurprisingly, it emboldens the Helvetii. And they begin to make more confident stands in their rearguard actions against Caesar and try to force the Romans into an actual full-on fight, a full-on battle. But Caesar holds his troops in reserve. And he's just content for now to shadow the Helvetii. He doesn't want to fight them yet. He wants to prevent them from foraging and for getting food and from plundering the, the area that they're around. But he does not want to get into an all-out battle yet. And this game of cat and mouse that they're playing with the Helvetii moving each day and Caesar following them goes on for about two weeks. But during these two weeks, Caesar begins to run low on food. Not just him personally, I mean his entire army begins to run low on food. And at this point in the year, Gaul is too cold for the army to live off the land. The crops haven't grown yet, there's just no possibility. Now, Caesar had planned ahead for this, and he had transported food up the Seon River, and he had big barges of food for his troops, but the Helvetii had moved away from the river since then, because he's been following them for two weeks, like I said. And Caesar can go back to these barges to pick up new supplies, but if he does so, he lets the Helvetii go. And then, I mean, there there are no GPSs back then, right? An army can just disappear, and it's very tough to find them. And he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to break contact with the enemy. He wants to stay on top of them. So he has a tough decision to make. Obviously, his his army can't march without food. And in fact, will die in you know a foreign territory without supplies. But luckily, Caesar has friends in the area to help him out. Or so he thinks. One of Rome's chief allies in Gaul, the Idoe, step up and volunteer to supply his army with food. And they did this a little while back, because Caesar knew this was going to be a problem as soon as he started moving away from the river. Now, you'll remember from the previous episode, the Idoe, and this is actually, there's some tribe names you don't need to remember that aren't that important. The Idoe are important. So remember that name, the Idoe. The Idoe, if you remember from last episode, had been one of the chief tribes that had come to Caesar when the Helvetii were crossing through their territory and burning and stealing and raping and doing everything else that uh, migrating armies do. And they had complained to Caesar and requested help and said, like, hey, we're allies of Rome. And yes, we let these guys through our territory, but we did not expect them to do all these things. We had an agreement with them. And so they had requested Rome's help. 
and for some time now, Caesar had been waiting for the food that the Helvetii had promised. But this wait has gotten so bad at this point that Caesar is doubting their sincerity altogether at this point. And in Caesar's own words, he says in the commentary, and I have a quote here for you, and just before I read this quote, just know, he talks in third person about him, he. He's talking about himself, Caesar, because the commentaries are almost always written in third person. Only a few parts are written in first person. He also talks about corn. At least the translation is, is corn. I was very confused when I first read this because I was like, corn, isn't that a New World product? But corn is just used in, in place of like a staple crop. So in this case, it's probably wheat or barley or, or something like that. But in the translation, they refer to it as corn. And Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, The Idui were fobbing him off from one day to the next. Their corn was being collected, they said. It was being transported. It was at hand. When he realized he was being put off too long, and that the time had arrived when the corn ought to be distributed to the men, he summoned the leaders of the Idui. End quote. And I think what happens here next from a student of history's perspective is really interesting. If your goal in reading this kind of history, like me, is to learn from these great figures of the past and to apply those lessons to your own life, then this coming story is a really good one. Because in this story, Caesar really goes into detail on an absolute mess he has to deal with with an unreliable supplier. This is a, probably a problem that almost any business owner could relate to today. And we, I've dealt with countless small business owners as a business banker and helped them, and, and many times they can have to deal with bad suppliers and it can cause you headaches or even cause your business to go under if they're bad enough and if you don't have enough options. Well, Caesar's dealing with exactly that. But the difference between a business owner today and him back then is that back then it was life and death. Caesar has the responsibility of 20 to 25,000 soldiers, and if he can't feed them, they could all die. What's more, there's probably, there's almost certainly thousands of more people that are not counted among the soldiers. People that are camp followers that do various duties, so he probably has many more than 20,000 mouths to feed, and they're all dependent on Caesar. Talk about a lot of pressure. And it's easy to read the commentaries and say, Caesar did this, and then he did that, and then it all worked out, or maybe it all worked out. But let's never forget that if things all work out in any given situation with Caesar, or, or at any time when you're reading history, it does so, or in Caesar's case, it does so because he handles it so well. It was not preordained that, of course, things worked out. It's because he handled it well, and in studying how he handles these kind of issues, you can learn a lot of things that you can apply to your everyday life at your job, which is one of the reasons I love history so much. I mean, I, I'm not a historian. I'm a fan of history. I like to study it and apply it to my life in these kinds of ways. But a lesser commander than Caesar may have seen his army starve in a case like this. So let's take a deep dive and learn some lessons on administration and managing big egos from one of the best of all time at it. Now, like I said, Caesar calls a meeting of the Idui leadership. And at this meeting, Caesar takes them to task, basically, for their less than stellar support of his army, even though that they had promised it. And he particularly calls them out for the fact that he was engaged in this war because they had requested his help. 
In other words, they came running to him and said, Caesar, Caesar, these guys are hurting us and they're tearing up our land and stealing all of our stuff. Come help us. And now he's over there helping them and they're not supplying him with food. Now, of course, Devil's Advocate could say that Caesar wanted a war all along, so this was in his interest as well, and he's not there purely for altruistic reasons, but that's neither here nor there. And after Caesar had finished dressing them down, the Idoe Vergebrae, Liscus, comes forward, and the Vergebrae was basically their appointed leader for the year, like a consul. And Liscus tells Caesar that there are a few men in their tribe of the Idoe who hold even stronger control over the tribe than the appointed magistrate, meaning himself, the Vergebrae. This is almost like a form of shadow government by powerful elites within the Idoe. And this group of shadow government elites were preventing the grain from being collected and sent to Caesar. And the reasoning that this little shadow government gave to their own people, to the Idoe, for withholding the food was, one, that it was better to be ruled by other Gauls, meaning the Helvetii, than by Romans. And two, that they're certain that if the Romans defeat the Helvetii, they will then take away the liberty of the Idui and eventually all of Gaul. Talk about foreshadowing. And Caesar's the one relaying this very accurate and real concern to his audience. And to me, at least, this is where Caesar gains credibility because he's allowing an allied Gaul to paint him and the entire Roman people and the way that Rome works in the worst and yet most accurate light possible in his own narrative. This guy is literally saying that the Idoe are afraid that Rome's going to come in and once they're there, they won't leave and they're going to take away the Idoe's freedom and they're going to take away the freedom of all of Gaul, which, as we know, 2,000 years later, looking back, is exactly what happened. And Caesar must have known that's exactly what he probably planned to do. And yet he's reporting this guy's words still. It, it kind of blows my mind that he would... Because it makes him in Rome look so bad, and yet he still puts it in the narrative. Now, it is possible maybe that at this time he did not have plans to conquer all of Gaul. You know, yes, he wanted a great war, but maybe it hadn't occurred to him to try to conquer the entire territory yet. And so that's why he had no problem putting that in there. I don't know. It's impossible to know. But it's fascinating. Now, Liscus, that's the Vergebrae, the leader of the Idoe, at least the leader in name, even says that he fears for his life for even reporting this plot to Caesar. He fears that he's in some kind of danger now. And Caesar hears all of this. He listens, he hears Liscus out, he thinks about all of this. And he's a clever politician, Caesar. You know, whether it's Rome or in Gaul, he's a very clever politician, and he reads between the lines. And he's pretty darn sure that he knows exactly who Liscus is referring to with this shadow government that's going on. It's a man named Dumnorix. That's, that's his actual name, Dumnorix. <laughs> and Dumnorix is the brother to a powerful druid of the Idoe named Divikiakis. And Divikiakis is attending this meeting with Caesar and with the Virgobrae. And he's sitting right there listening to all this. And Divikiakis is actually a big ally and proponent of Rome within the Idoe. What's more, Dumnorix's wife is Helvetian. Her people are the Helvetii. And he has hoped 
that with their help, if he can get them in power, he would be named King of the Idawi once the Helvetii have gained power in the region. He also thought that he would lose a lot of his own power that he has right now if the Romans gained power, and he probably wasn't wrong. But Caesar doesn't want to air his suspicions publicly, at least not yet. So he dismisses all of the people at this meeting except for Liscus, that's the Vergebrae, and then he questions him privately. He gets all of Liscus's details. He, he's more willing to speak openly and honestly in private when he's not around all these people listening, when he's not standing next to the brother of the guy who's doing all this plotting. Caesar then questions several other men in secret and finds that they confirm the story that's being told to him by Liscus. What's more, in these investigations, Caesar finds out that the cavalry route that had happened earlier, where 4,000 of his cavalry were routed by 500 Helvetii cavalry, had been started by Dumnorix. Essentially, what had happened is Dumnorix had been in charge of the Idoese portion of the cavalry, which made up a good chunk of the Allied cavalry that Caesar had. And they had intentionally began to flee from the Helvetii, causing panic among Caesar's troops. If you know anything about ancient armies, they say that fear spread like a plague. Once one person started running, then the next person started running, and pretty soon everybody was in a full-blown panic and just running for their lives, and people would just absolutely lose their minds. So fear was the biggest enemy on the battlefield. And so by running like this, other people just see a good chunk of their army running, and they're not sure why, and they figure, well, if they're running, I should run too. I don't want to be the last one standing. So by fleeing like this, they basically caused the route, and they caused the Helvetii to think that they were superior now and could defeat the Romans and to become more bold. But all of this is not enough. A lot of it's hearsay, right? And people are not willing to say it publicly, only privately to Caesar when nobody else is around. But Caesar keeps on searching, and finally he comes across the proof that he needs. A magistrate of the Idui had come forward and accused Dumnorix of leading Helvetii through their new route. Remember, they wanted to go through the Roman province, they couldn't, Caesar blocked them, and they had to take a second route, a much more dangerous route, through different tribes' territories, including the Idui. This man comes forward, this magistrate, and accuses Dumnorix of being their guide through all these territories. This magistrate also accuses Dumnorix of arranging for the exchange of hostages between the Helvetii and tribes whose land they would pass through. And what? And here's the kicker. This guy says that Dumnorix did all of this without the permission or even knowledge of both Rome, we knew about that already because Caesar was unaware of this, and of the Idui. The Idui had no idea he was leading the Helvetii through their territory. They had no idea that he was brokering these deals for hostages. This is all, he's just kind of acting rogue without permission of the Idui government and without the knowledge of Rome. Now, because of all of this, Caesar finally feels justified in punishing Dubnorix, or at least having the Idui punish him. But, as happens so often, politics prevent this. Remember, Dumnorix's older brother, Divicciacus, is a great supporter of Rome and a Druid. A Druid's like a religious leader among the Gallic people, and they had great, great influence and, and power, and so it's not somebody you want to get on the wrong side of. 
So Caesar calls Divikiakis to his tent, and he lays out the evidence against his brother, Dumnorix. And you've got to wonder how this guy's going to react to you accusing his brother of being a traitor and accusing him of all these crimes. Surprisingly, Divikiakis breaks down into tears and says that he's aware of it all and he knows it's all true. He tells Caesar that he helped his brother to gain power years earlier, but Dumnorix had turned against him since then, and that now he had no ability to control his brother anymore. Despite this, he begs Caesar not to punish his brother for personal and especially for political reasons, because if Divikiakis is seen to take Rome's side against the side of his own brother, he says all of Gaul would turn on him as a traitor to family, to blood, to his own people. And Caesar, being as clever a politician as ever they've come, understands this instantly, and he doesn't need to convince Caesar much of this. He tells Divikiakis not to worry, and in his own words in the commentaries, Caesar says that he made sure to demonstrate that Divikiakis' influence and words were valuable to Caesar, that his influence was valuable. So Caesar then calls in Dumnorix to the tent, and he lays out the claims against him one by one. But despite all of this, he says that he would spare him any punishment for his brother's sake, but he warned that all these actions must stop. But Caesar, he can be trusting, he can be forgiving, he's famous for this, but he's not a sucker. He's well aware this guy's still not trustworthy, he just can't kill him because of who he is and how it would affect things politically. So he places Dumnorix under guards that he would know anywhere that Dumnorix goes, who he goes to see, who he meets with, and keep an eye on the guy. Now, finally, the block to Caesar's supplies has been removed, but it's not like, poof, suddenly there's supplies in his camp. It's still going to take time to get the supplies from the Idawi to Caesar. So he still has a problem. He's still low on supplies, and it's still got to be nerve-wracking knowing that any day could come the day where Caesar's troops line up to receive their rations, and he has no food to give them. And this is an army that's not fanatically loyal to him yet. They don't know him that well. Will they fight if they don't get their food? Remains to be seen. But there's a lot of lessons to be learned in how Caesar handles this whole episode. It reminds me, it's more similar than a lot of things we've talked about to more modern problems. And some of the lessons I take away from it are, like, one, Caesar handles everything in that whole scenario face-to-face, and he deals with it personally. He doesn't write letters. He doesn't have other surrogates handle it for him. He goes there in person, and he handles it, and he sits down with his people face-to-face. I think that makes a big difference. He also cares to get the story from multiple voices, which a more rash or hot-headed commander may have just heard it from one voice and gone off, and not have had the justification needed to be able to, you know, put Dumnorix in his place like this. He also shows a willingness to forgive and not to take things personal. Now, that could be a good thing, and in many cases it was in Caesar's life. Now, Augustus would look back years later and he would call, or essentially, at least insinuate, that Caesar's policy of clemency, of always forgiving people and always being above the fray, was a failure because it had led to his assassination. Maybe there's a point that Augustus had in that, but for much of Caesar's life, his willingness to forgive and to not take things personal was a huge benefit to him, and and this is one of those cases. Caesar also takes 
careful consideration of the various egos involved and the political ramifications of doing what I called the satisfying thing. It would have been very satisfying for Caesar just to arrest some norks and have his head chopped off and boom, give me my grain. But of course, that's while it's going to be satisfying, it's not going to bring you the desired results. And I think too often people find themselves in lives wanting to do the easy thing, the more obvious thing, the satisfying thing, than doing what really needs to be done. But by watching Caesar, you can often see him do the thing that's not satisfying, forgiving treacherous people, looking past their transgressions, even though he knows they're probably going to betray him again because it's the best thing for his personal ambitions and the best thing for Rome. But that's it for the episode today. Like I said, we're going to try to keep it a little bit shorter. I think I'm still over the 20-minute mark, but we're getting better. We're getting shorter. We're getting more crisp with our episodes. So as a final uh, end to the episode, let me just say, if you listen on the Apple Podcast Store or any kind of podcast store that allows you to leave a rating, we would love if you would leave us a rating, uh, a little review of the podcast, what you liked about it. Five stars would be great, you know. but we'll take what we can get. And make sure to share the podcast with other podcast listeners, other fans of history. We would love it if you would do that. And make sure to subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes come out. Our Instagram, as always, is at the March of History. The Twitter is at March underscore History. The Facebook page, if you just search the March of History. And our email, if you want to send us any information, constructive criticism or, or compliments or, or just want to make contact as a fan of the podcast is the March of history at gmail.com. And I'm very close to having a website done. I've been using a, a service. I won't say their name, but I thought I was on the 90th yard line, like about to finish it. And then suddenly it's asking me to pay a whole bunch of money for different things. So that may be put on the back burner for now, or I may have to find a new service that doesn't cost so much or it's free. But yeah, so that's coming in the future for the podcast. Hopefully we will have a website up where you can kind of access the different episodes and find out what we're up to. And uh, in the meantime, feel free to reach out to us on social media. We'd love to hear from any fans of the show. Oh, and one more thing before I go there, I want to give you an update on kind of what's happening here in Spain, because yes, I had all these grand plans of traveling and seeing different areas that Caesar had either fought in or, or big things that happened in his life. Right now, we're not allowed to leave the city of Huelva, never mind the country of Spain. So there is no getting to the battle sites in France right now. Maybe that'll happen in the near future. I can only hope. We'll see what happens. But I'm hoping that for Christmas time, they will at least let us travel within the province or within the country of Spain. And I can get to somewhere like Cadiz, uh, where Caesar would have been governor of. I think in the ancient times, you refer to that as Gades. So when he was governor of, was it further Spain? He would have been stationed there, at least for part of the time. And when he was a proquester in Spain or at least some point when he was in Spain, is when he saw the statue of Alexander in Gades in, in modern-day Cadiz. So it would be cool to get there. You know, I don't know how much of the Roman stuff survives there, but at least it would be ground that Caesar walked on. So I think that would be pretty cool to show for the podcast or for the, for the Instagram channel of the podcast. But uh, yeah, I just want to give you an update on what's happening here. Hopefully things will loosen up with corona. In the meantime, everybody out there, stay safe and stay healthy. Finally, I'll give you a sneak peek of what's going to happen in the next episode of the March of History, finally, Caesar and the Helvetii 
their dispute with each other, their argument, their stalking of each other comes to a head and the big battle finally happens. And who wins and who loses and, and how each side fights, you'll have to tune in next time to find out on the March of History.